thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, lovely to lovely to see you all. Nice to see Ben. Nice to see you, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People at home are wondering who on earth am I talking to over there. It's Ben. Hey. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, good. Yes, good afternoon. Great to um, be with you. And, you know, Ruth was talking about an opportunity to start prayer and fasting early. Whose heart leapt with joy? Yeah? We love a bit of fasting, don't we? Oh. Hopefully, my hope is that by the end of today, we will have a better understanding of what we're doing when we fast. And actually, there'll be something in our hearts that actually does want to go for that, even though it's not easy and it's hard. So I'm going to talk a bit about that today. Really, it's a little bit different today. My aim today is just to do a bit of an intro to the 40 days prayer and fasting that is coming up starting next week. We're not fasting for 40 days, by the way. It's one day in the week, but I'll explain all of that. But just to help us to understand what it's all about, to hopefully help us to really fully engage with it as well. I'm really looking forward to, to it, and I say that because I look back to times we've done this in the past, when we've done a season of 40 days. Actually, the last time was 2017, so it's been quite a while. But we've done these seasons in the past, and they've always been really profound and significant times for us as a church, times of going deeper with God, um, times of building community. That's a really important part of it as well, building community together. But also, I believe that things changed because the church prayed because prayer is powerful. Things changed. Things changed in me, things changed in the church, things changed around us because the church prayed. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And let's all approach this upcoming season of 40 days with that kind of expectation that God will do mighty things. He will do powerful things in our own lives, in our church, and also through our church during that season, but also beyond that season. There will be some things that will never be the same again because the church sought God in prayer and fasting. So, the Sunday series that we're going to be preaching through for this period of 40 days, so for seven Sundays, and there's actually a little bonus one on the end as well, but for seven Sundays, the series is, is, is what you can see there, Disciples, and uh, we are going to be looking at those rhythms of discipleship that we look at on chapter one, for those who have done chapter one. If you haven't done chapter one, those are rhythms of scripture, a rhythm of prayer, uh, a rhythm of power, a rhythm of freedom, of reaching out, of generosity and worship. So seven life-giving rhythms, they're all done in the context of community, seven life-giving rhythms that help us to follow Jesus well. So it's really fundamentals. It's looking at the fundamentals of following Jesus. And why are we doing that? Why are we looking at that? Because I think that this world needs, and maybe more than ever before, this world needs faithful followers of Jesus whose lives look different from the world's. Our lives are to look different, and that's not always easy, but the world needs faithful followers of Jesus whose lives look different and who can point the world towards the hope that we have. We can point the world towards Jesus. He's the one that makes the difference. So we're going to be looking at those rhythms on the Sundays, and then that teaching will be reinforced through the daily devotionals in this booklet that you're all going to get, okay? This booklet called Disciples 
Um, this, is full of, this has got 40 days worth of daily devotional. So before I get on to talking about fasting and prayer, let me just uh, get a little bit practical. I'm going to go through some practical details of these 40 days, again, just to help us understand what it's about, what's going on. So just bear with me as I give out some practical information here. So we're going to give these booklets out to you later in the meeting. Uh, it doesn't start till next week, but this way you've got it a week in advance. So if anyone's not here next week, etc., you've got this booklet a week in advance, ready to start next week. Now, the daily devotionals themselves in this booklet, they will start on Monday, the 12th of June. And the, the daily devotionals for a week will focus on the theme that's going to be preached on the following Sunday. So um, next week, um, we'll be preaching about the rhythm of Scripture. But then the next day, on the Monday, the daily devotionals will start on the theme of prayer, the rhythm of prayer, because that's what's going to be spoken about the following Sunday. So if it looks like, when you look through this book, if it looks like there's a whole missing set of devotionals on the rhythm of Scripture, it's because there is. They are missing, but that's deliberate. It's intentional. Uh, seven rhythms time doesn't go into 40 days, so we had to kind of leave one out. And you're going to be getting into a rhythm of Scripture anyway. If you engage with this, you're going to be getting into a rhythm of Scripture anyway. Um, just for the, those who are more visual among you, just show you what a, a daily devotional page looks like. This is not so you can read it. I know you probably can't from where you are. But just to show you the shape of the page. So at the top of the page there, you've got a Bible reading. So every day there'll be a scripture. Some will be shorter, some will be longer. Read it, okay? Do read that first because the notes that follow are about making sense of that scripture in line with a the theme that we're looking at that week. But then you'll see at the bottom, towards the bottom, there's a little response section. And... Um, that will be inviting you, challenging you to some sort of response, whether that's to reflect on something, to pray about something, or to do something in response to what you've just been reading about. And of course, it's completely up to you whether you do that or not, or how long you give to that. But my encouragement, my strong encouragement, would be to go for it, to challenge yourself, to spend time letting yourself respond to what you are reading. And then at the bottom of each day, you see there in the grey box at the bottom, you have a, a prayer theme to pray for. So again, you've got the whole church praying for the same things all together. That will be one of 10 church-wide prayer themes that will repeat four times over the 40 days. But you'll notice it's just a single line. So that one's pray for our ministries that serve different generations. The detailed prayer points will be on the website, will be at the 40 days page. The web address is there. There's a, there's a what's it, code somewhere that you can, um, what's it called? QR code that you can scan. So all the detailed prayer points will be on the website. For anybody who really, really doesn't get on well with that and would like a printed out copy, I'm sure we can arrange that for you as well. But for most of us, it would be just quickly get to the website. There are the prayer points. Let's pray for those things on that day. So we're all praying the same things together. So to get the most out of this, out of the booklet, I would really recommend that you set aside a regular time each day, time you're going to be uninterrupted, time with no distractions, to be able to really focus on this. Now, of course, some of you will already have that pattern in your life. You've got a regular time in your day where you spend time with God, you pray, you read scripture. So for you, it's just about incorporating this into that time. Again, so you're joining with others in doing the same things. But for others, this will be a really helpful way for you to set a pattern in your life if you don't have one already. This is a really easy way of setting a pattern of prayer, a pattern of scripture, getting into those rhythms that we're talking about already um, to do that, but you've got to make the decision to do it. You've got to plan. It doesn't just happen, you will find. You've got to plan to pray. You've got to plan to read scripture. So make the time to do that. So that's a key part of the 40 days is the devotional booklet, which you will get a bit later on. 
But then there are the midweek evening celebrations. And I've said this before, but I just can't overemphasize how important those times are. How important those meetings are for you to be there, if at all uh, possible. It's an opportunity to gather together. It's an opportunity to uh, worship together, to break bread together, to encounter God together, to pray together. We'll be focusing on various aspects of the church as family and, and building family together. So we'll be focusing on different aspects of that. We've got some great guest speakers for some of those evenings as well. Um, I really, really want us to prioritize being there, if at all possible. Even if Wednesdays are inconvenient for you. I know for some of you, you might have things in which you just simply can't change. That's fine. But even if Wednesdays are inconvenient for you, for six weeks, prioritize this. Because I, I can pretty much guarantee that this will be more important in the grand scheme of things. This is eternal. What we'll be doing on these evenings is eternal, and it will have eternal consequences. So if you possibly can, prioritize this. Prioritize being here on those evening meetings. Now, of course, it's on the day of those midweek celebrations, on the Wednesdays, that we're asking as many people in the church as possible to fast if that's appropriate for you. And there's information and guidelines in here at the back of this booklet about fasting, but do have a read of that. But I just want to take a little bit of extra time now to go a little bit deeper into that. Just to, I, I don't think fasting is necessarily very well understood. Uh, I don't claim to understand all of it either, but I'm going to do my best to bring a bit of explanation, share in a bit more depth about fasting and why we fast before I then go on and talk about prayer and why it's so important that we, that we pray. So biblical fasting, what is it? Biblical fasting is when we choose to go without food, usually without food for a limited period of time for spiritual purposes. And that is the key part. It's for spiritual purposes. Because of course, there are other reasons that people might choose to go without food. Um, losing weight might be one. Uh, some sort of detox kind of thing might be another. That's not biblical fasting. That's not what we're talking about. Um, it's going without food for a limited period of time for spiritual purposes. Having said that, let me just say really clearly, or as clearly as I possibly can, up front, that abstaining from food is not going to be appropriate for everybody here. Okay? It's not going to be appropriate for everybody. It might be you have a particular medical issue, uh, mental health struggles and things like that, which mean it just simply wouldn't be wise for you to abstain from food. And what I would say is if you have any doubts at all about it, um, talk to somebody you trust. You know, you've got to know yourself. You've got to know what you can do and what, you're, what would be wise for you. But actually, you can also talk with somebody. You can talk with a doctor. Obviously, if it's a medical thing, you can talk with somebody you trust who you know will give you good advice if you have any doubts about it at all. And, of course, there are other ways. In those circumstances, there are other ways of fasting. There are other ways of abstaining from something that you would notice. And that's important, that it is something you will notice. Okay, so I'm not going to be doing a broccoli fast because I wouldn't notice it. Okay, it would be pointless. It would it would be make no difference to my life whatsoever. Um, but there are other things you can fast from. So whether that's TV screens, you know, social media, whatever it might be, make sure it's something that will actually you will miss that you will court that you will it will cause you to notice it. But you can fast from other things because it's really all about the heart. It's not about it's not so much about the action, it's about the heart behind the fast, and it's about dedicating it to God. And again, different kinds of fast outlined at the back of this booklet. But if you are able to fast from food, in other words, if there isn't actually a particular reason medically or whatever that you, 
that you shouldn't try it, it's just that you don't like the thought of it. Um, if you are able to fast and you maybe never tried it before, I would really encourage you to go for it, to give it a go. Not because I love fasting, I really don't. It's not, I, it, honestly, I don't, I don't like fasting, I don't look forward to it, uh, but because it's important. I think it's really important, and I'll explain that in a minute. And of course, you can build up to it. You know, it might be, if you've never done it before, might you just start with a short, a short period, maybe even just one meal, um, and you can then build up to a day. And for some of you, you might want to go even a little bit longer than that. You might want to do two days or even three days. So I've done that before. So I do, uh, when we have our regular fasting, which Ruth talked about, first Wednesday of the month, I do that day of fasting. But uh, just before Easter, for various reasons, I decided to turn that into a three-day fast. Okay? And I'm not saying that to make myself look good or, or to suggest that's what you should do. I'm just saying there are different ways of approaching it. It's important to not be legalistic about it. It's important to know yourself, but set a time and build up to it if that's what it's going to take. One thing that I would say really is important, though, is that however long you're planning on fasting for, whatever you're fasting from, do plan time to pray. I've done this so many times where I've done a day, a day of fasting and I've just been so busy I get it, and I've completely forgotten. I've not given God any of my time, and so the result, the result is I'm just hungry and pretty grumpy, to be honest. I don't do well without food. I do get quite grumpy. And this is something you'll find with fasting: is it does bring out some of your worst, and that's okay because it means you can challenge yourself on it and ask God to speak into those things that come out of you. But yeah, I've done it so many times where I've done that, and I've just I've just got hungry, and it probably hasn't really served the purpose for which I for which I was doing it, plan time to pray, plan time to um, be with God in that time that you're making available through not eating or through whatever it is you're fasting from. Plan time to pray, spend time with God, feast on God's word, like you're fasting from something, so use the time to feast in another way, to feast on God's word. Jesus talks about the word of God being life and, and, and eating the words of God, you know, that's the bread that we need and so feast on God's word, plan to pray, spend time with God, read his word in the time you're fasting. Now, a question, of course, that you're probably asking is, but why? Because it seems an odd thing to do, doesn't it, to, to fast, to go without food or whatever it is. Why do it? What, what, what's it all about? Um, so briefly, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you fast. He doesn't say if, he's talking to his followers, he says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He says, when you fast. Now, that is obviously not a direct command. It's not an imperative. He's not kind of giving them a direct, you must do this. But there's clearly a, a, an indication of some sort of expectation of his followers. Because Jesus also says in the same chapter, I think, he says, when you give. And he says, when you pray. And I don't think we would dispute the, the validity of those rhythms of the Christian life, giving and praying. He says, when you give... And when you pray, the indication is this is to be a normal part of Christian life. That fasting is to be as important a rhythm in the Christian life as things like giving and praying. And maybe we don't think of it in those ways. It always seems to be something for maybe slightly more extreme people. Or it, it, I don't know how many of us have a rhythm of fasting. But that is why, however long ago it was, we put in that rhythm of fasting in church life. The first Wednesday of the month. Because it helps us. For those who engage with it, which I suspect is very few people at the moment, and I hope it will grow. I hope that will become greater as we go through this season of 40 days. 
Um, but it's to help us to have that as a normal part of our life, that it is a rhythm that we're, that we're in. And we're doing it together as well. It does, it's helpful to do these things um, together. Jesus also goes on to say um, in Matthew 9, he, as he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are asking him, well, why are your disciples not fasting when others are? And he talks about being the bridegroom, and he gives this complicated explanation about it, but then he says, the days are coming when I will be gone, and then they will fast. So that's pretty definite. They will. So when you fast, they will fast. There's a clear expectation of fasting being a rhythm of the Christian life. So fasting is primarily an act of obedience. That's what it is. First and foremost, an act of worship, because obedience is worship. It's an act of worship that is centered on God. Many times in Scripture, fasting is directly linked with worship. It is part of our worship. It's a way, it's a means of bringing worship to God. And um, so... That is the primary purpose and motivation for fasting, worship, worshiping God. And we've got to make sure our motives are right. And, you know, obviously we, you know, we're human, so we don't always have our motives perfectly worked out. Sometimes we come with mixed motives, but we've got to make sure our motives are right. I've already mentioned a couple of motives which would be wrong for fasting. Let me mention a couple of others which are maybe a little bit more subtle. Um, So we might see fasting sometimes as a way of twisting God's arm. A, a means of getting what we want, getting him to do what we want. That's wrong. That's a wrong motive because actually it's far more about us submitting ourselves to him and his will, seeking to discern what he, We might have an idea of what we want to do and we can pray those things, but primarily it's about having the humility of heart to say, but God, it's not what I want, it's what you want. It's what Jesus said in the garden. It's what we say to him. It's not what I will, it's what you will. And it's about seeking and discerning and being obedient to his will. Not about twisting God's arm. Another motive we might have is we just see it as a way of earning something from God. Earning merit or earning favour because of our good deeds. Wrong. It's a wrong motive. It's pride. That's pride. And, and it shows we haven't understood God's grace. So fasting is worship. It is worship. It's saying to God, you are first in my life. I depend on you for everything. Even more than food. And anything else, I depend on you to sustain me. And I want to dedicate myself. I want to submit myself. I want to give myself wholeheartedly to you. Again, that's why it's good to have a regular rhythm of fasting in our lives. And I'd encourage you to get on board with that uh, if you can. But of course, we do also see examples in the Bible of concerted periods of fasting at particular times for particular reasons. So like Elijah and Moses, they both did 40-day fasts. Now, that's not what we're doing. Okay, those are supernatural fasts. Um, but think of what happened when Moses fasted. He received the Ten Commandments you know, that we're still talking about today. He encountered God in an incredible way, saw his glory and just was in the presence of God. Incredible things happened when Moses fasted. In the book of Esther, God's people fast and pray for three days at a time of great threat for them. Their response is to fast and pray. In Acts 13, you have Paul and Barnabas. They're fasting with their friends before going on their missionary journey. So there's this sense of preparation and releasing of power for their journey. Then, of course, there's Jesus himself, who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And um, this is what an author called Jensen Franklin says about it. He says, If Jesus could have accomplished all he came to do without fasting, why would he fast? The Son of God fasted because he knew there were supernatural things that could only be released in that way. How much more 
should fasting be a common practice in our lives? Okay? So if Jesus fasted, if he had to fast to achieve, then why wouldn't we have to? What's that noise? Is something playing? Is, is there something playing? Oh, okay. Cool, thank you. Um, so, there are secondary benefits to fasting. There are, there are benefits. It, it is first and foremost worship, and that's the primary motivation, the primary purpose is worship. But there are benefits to fasting that come. So let me just briefly outline a couple of those. So the first, I think, is to do with hearing God and hearing God more clearly. Now, let me be absolutely clear. It doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes fasting, it's just a grind. Sometimes it's just hard work. You, even if you are, you're, you're, you're fasting, you're making time to be with God, sometimes you don't feel anything. You don't hear him. You don't, you're just in a bit of a fog. You're distracted. And sometimes it's like that, and that's okay because it's dedicated to him. And so we just trust that the act itself is something that delights him. But in general, I think fasting does open the door to hearing God more clearly. So to take that example of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, it says in Acts 13, it says, while they were worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and then God spoke. God said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for me. God spoke in the context of the fast and the worship. So, so there's this link between worship and fasting and hearing what God is, is, is saying. It's a bit like putting yourself in a position to hear God. You know, like I don't know about you, but at home sometimes we try and have conversations from different rooms of the house. And if one of us is in the kitchen, the other's in the lounge, and the kettle's on, you can't hear a word that's being said. So you've got to move and you've got to put yourself in a position to hear what the other person is saying. Sometimes it doesn't take there to be any noise at all, I just don't listen. But um, you've got to put yourself in a position to hear. And, you know, actually, I think God is speaking to us all the time, just most of the time we're not listening. Or we're deaf to his voice. But it's kind of like fasting fine-tunes the radio. You know, gets rid of the static. So those of you who remember old-style radios, where you turn the dial and you're tuning in and you go through all the static on the airwaves and and finally you get the point where it's like, oh, that's it, it's clear now. I think fasting is a bit like that, getting rid of the static so we can hear God more clearly. And I need to hear God. You need to hear God. But I I know I need to hear God because let me be honest with you, most of the time I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, I might give a different impression. I might give you the impression that I'm fully in control of everything. I'm not, okay? I need to hear God. We need to hear God's voice as a church. You might need to hear God for particular situations you're facing. You know, maybe a decision you've got to make and you just need clarity. You need direction. Well, fasting is a good way of approaching that. So hearing God, and the second thing, I think it gives us increased authority. And this is a slightly strange one. I don't really understand it because, of course, Jesus gives us his authority. He says, I've given you the authority that I have. So how can it increase? I don't really know. But in some mysterious way, fasting seems to do that. It seems to increase or amplify our authority. So there's a sense in which we pray with more power when we're fasting. There's a greater assurance and conviction about our prayers and that those prayers are being heard and that they're being effective, that they are having an effect. There's, there's something powerful about it. You know, whenever we've had an evening meeting following a day of fasting, this is why I'm so keen for as many as possible to be here for those meetings, because whenever we've done that before, following a day of fasting, it's just been powerful. There's something extra, there's something powerful in the worship. There's a depth of worship that happens that is kind of indefinable, but it's there. 
You're connecting with God in a different way. There's, a, there's an atmosphere of, of faith and expectancy. The way we pray, it's just different. We see it with Jesus himself. After his fasting in the wilderness, we're told that he returned in the power of the Spirit and he starts his ministry preaching with power and anointing. He heals the sick, he frees the oppressed, he drives out demons. And I think that our town... And our nation needs Christians and it needs churches who are moving in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and in the authority of Jesus and doing the things that he did and that he told us to do. Amen? Amen. That's, you can clap more if you want. I thought that was, I thought that was quite a good point. That's why we fast. That is why we fast. So hope, I, there's lots more we could say. There are whole books written about this. I've just scratched the surface, but hopefully it just helps us to understand a little bit more why we do this. That's why we fast. But of course, fasting has always got to be combined with prayer. We combine our fasting with prayer. And so here I want to just talk, finish by talking about prayer and take a lesson from the Old Testament to encourage us in prayer. I've used this example before, uh, but I like it, so I'm going to use it again. And I'm, I'm assuming that most of you don't remember anyway when I spoke on it last time. So repetition is good. So in 1 Kings 6 and 7, uh, King Solomon is building the temple in Jerusalem. And you know, it's this magnificent building which would be the dwelling place of God among his people. Right? When the temple was finished, the Ark of the Covenant was brought in, put in the most holy place right in the middle. And then the most amazing thing happens because the cloud of God, the cloud which you know, they'd followed through the wilderness and the cloud which was in the tabernacle signified the, pre- the very presence of God himself. The cloud descends and it fills this temple it must have been an incredible moment for Solomon for the people of Israel just absolutely amazing moment you know probably the high point really of Israel's history and sadly from that point it was all downhill but this is a moment God is there God is with them he's among his people and Solomon turns to all the gathered people of Israel he prays a blessing on them but then he turns towards the temple he turns towards the altar in the temple to pray a prayer of dedication but the striking thing about what he prays is that it's really a prayer about prayer he he comes out Solomon comes out with a series of requests it's a long prayer I'm not going to read all of it I'll just read a couple of bits a long series of requests for the Lord to listen to future prayer that's what it is that's what his prayer of dedication is all about so his in 1 Kings 8 verse 28 this is what Solomon prays He says, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. He's saying, Solomon is saying, Lord, when we pray, now and in the future, when we pray towards this temple, hear from heaven and forgive. I heard one commentator compare it to a bit like a switchboard, you know, an old style switchboard. Again, some of you won't know what I'm talking about. But in the early days of the phone network, when it was, you know, I'm talking landlines here, not, not what we've got in our pocket. But you would, you know, there weren't many phones, not many residences had phones. But what you would do if you had a phone is you'd pick it up and you'd speak to an operator who was sitting at a switchboard and you'd tell the operator which 
phone you want to connect to, which residence, what number you want to connect to. And then the operator would literally take the cable and plug you in to the right place so that you get through to the right phone. You speak to the right person. It's a switchboard. And then, of course, it got a bit more automated. It got a bit cleverer. But essentially, that's what a switchboard is. It takes your call and directs you to the place that you need to go to speak to. It's kind of what's happening here. You, you pray towards this temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. You pray towards the temple and it directs the prayers to the God who is in heaven. And he will hear and he will act. He will intervene on the earth. So here's an example of some of the things that Solomon prayed for, future things. So in verse 33, he said, when your people Israel have been defeated, so we're talking future time, when your people have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you, And when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their forefathers. So Solomon is, he's anticipating every disaster that Israel would face in the future and praying that the Lord would intervene. So he's saying, when there is famine, when there are plagues, when there are invaders, when we mess up, and he even includes exile, which is what would happen to them if they were taken to a foreign land and pretty much wiped out, but not quite. So he's saying, when these things happen, if we pray towards the temple, even from a foreign land, then hear us and help us. Hear us and help us. And the Lord, by being there, this cloud-filling temple, he is saying, yes, I am with you. And yes, I will do that. When you pray towards this temple, yeah, I will hear you. I will respond because you're my people and I'm for you. I love you. So the temple in Jerusalem is this house of prayer. It is access to God. The tragic thing is that it is consistently neglected by the vast majority of the kings of Judah. In fact, far from turning to the temple in prayer, the kings go and plunder the temple for gold and silver because what would happen is they would come under threat from a foreign invader and instead of thinking, ah, I know what to do in this situation. Solomon prayed about this. I know what I have to do now is I've got to turn towards the temple in prayer. Then God will hear from heaven and he will intervene. That's what I've got to do. But they didn't do that. When an invader came, they would go to the temple uh, not to pray, but to plunder it. Get gold and silver out of the temple to pay off the Assyrians, to pay off the foreign invader. But of course, it had the effect of not making them leave them alone because the Assyrians just think, well, there's more where that comes from. And so we're going to come back, and they did come back for more, and the invasions kept coming. There's only one king we know of who actually uses the temple as it was supposed to be used, as a house of prayer, and that's King Hezekiah. We read his story in 2 Kings 18 and 19. What had happened is that Judah had been invaded again by the Assyrians. The Assyrians had already defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, taken them into exile. They were done. It was brutal, you know, really brutal. The Assyrians were a brutal people. Uh, Now they're invading Judah, and they've taken all of Judah apart from Jerusalem, and they've surrounded Jerusalem. This is the last kind of stronghold, and they're surrounded, Uh, and it's this mighty Assyrian army. And then Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, receives a letter from the Assyrian king Sennacherib, basically saying, you're done. There is no hope for you. We are going to destroy you. And the Assyrians did have a fearful reputation. This is desperate. There is no way out of this. This There is no hope. It's only a matter of time. It is absolutely desperate. Hezekiah takes this letter from King Sennacherib. He goes up to the temple of the Lord and he spreads the letter out before the Lord. 
and he prays. He prays, O Lord God of Israel, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult you, the living God. O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are Lord. And the results are dramatic. Because that night, that very night, the Lord sends an angel into the Assyrian camp and wipes out 185,000 of them. I mean, it's grim. (laughs) It's pretty brutal. The Assyrians who survive wake up early next morning to find dead bodies everywhere. And of course, they've got to retreat. They've got to withdraw because they've got no army left. So God delivered them. It seems that Hezekiah's decision to take the issue to the temple in prayer was the right decision. It was a good decision. It worked. Praying to the temple for the Israelites was like the nuclear option. Utterly devastating. It was like the nuclear option. And they always had it at their disposal. How different could Judah's history have been if they had prayed instead of plundered? How many of Judah's failures were a result of their prayerlessness? We don't know, but it's a good question to ask. Now, we don't have the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed. We're in a new covenant. We have something far, far better because we have the temple that was destroyed and then raised to life again three days later because we are commanded to pray in the name of Jesus. We're commanded to pray in the name of the one in whom the fullness of God dwells, the the one through whom we have access to God because of him. We sung about it earlier. We get to approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence because of Jesus. He's the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the one who repeatedly in John's gospel says, whatever you ask in my name, my father will give you. He's the one who prays himself all the time and he intercedes for us, but he also tells us, he commands us, pray and don't give up. Pray and keep praying. Don't give up on your prayers. We're told in Revelation 8 that the prayers of the saints rise like incense before God and they are followed by thunder and lightning and earthquakes. According to God's word, the prayers of the saints, your prayers, my prayers, are powerful. Even when it doesn't feel like it, which let's face it is is most of the time. But that's where we trust what the word says. That's where we trust what Jesus, why would Jesus tell us to pray if it wasn't effective? Why would he tell us to pray if there wasn't power in it? Why would he pray himself if there wasn't power in it? According to the word of God, your prayers are powerful even when it doesn't feel like it. Any great revival there's ever been in human history has always been rooted in faithful and persistent prayer. And again, how much of human history has been shaped by the prayers of God's people. When revival comes, it reshapes a society. It reshapes a nation. How much of human history has been shaped by the prayers of God's people or conversely, by the prayerlessness of God's people? Because we can look at our nation, we can look at our society and kind of despair at what's going on, at the kind of things that our kids are being taught, the lies they're being sold and all this. How much is it because of prayer? And the church in this nation hasn't prayed. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. But we do know prayer is powerful and prayer is effective. Every time we cry out for God's kingdom to come, every time we cry out for more of God's power, every time we approach him with a humble heart, 
that wants to do his will, is, is, is resolutely uh, intending to do his will, it is like incense rising before him and unleashing power on the earth. It's the Bible that tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective in James 5. 1 John 5 says this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And just as Solomon turned towards the temple, he turned towards this house of prayer, and he said, when your people, Lord, when your people turn towards this place and pray, then hear us from heaven and intervene. So we need this church to be a house of prayer. We need this church to be devoted to prayer, just as we read about the early church being devoted to prayer in Acts 2. That as we turn our hearts, not to the temple in Jerusalem, but as we turn our hearts towards Jesus, we pray in his name for God's kingdom to come. And we pray in his name for this town and for this nation and for this world that has no hope other than Jesus. We pray in his name for the gospel to advance, for the kingdom to advance. We pray in his name for the mission and the vision he's given us as a church to be fulfilled. We pray in his name for rescue and for deliverance when we face difficult circumstances and we pray in the confidence that he hears us and that he is for us. He's the one who died for us. He gave everything for us. Don't let us ever think that he's not for us. We know we come to the one who hears us and the only one who can change things and he can change things in an instant. There are big things that we want God to do. There are big prayers that we have to pray. There are big questions. I have big questions about, look, what does a diverse church of thousands that surrounds and saturates High Wycombe with the love of Jesus, that's the vision we feel God has given us, what does that really look like? What, what, what plan, what, what, what does God have in mind? What shape of church does he have in mind for that? What does that really look like? Big questions, big decisions that lie ahead. And if we want to see God move... I'm convinced that we also have to move. We don't just sit passively saying, oh, Lord, come, Lord, send revival. No, I think he calls his people to move, and he moves with us, and he moves towards us. If we want God to move, we've got to move towards him, seeking him in prayer, in fasting, and with a heart that is resolute in being obedient to whatever he tells us to do, whatever path he leads us on. That's what this season of 40 days is all about. If we want to see God move, if we want to see his kingdom come in this place. If we want to see salvation and revival, we must pray. It's not an optional extra. It's not something just to do when we feel like it. No, we must pray and we must be intentional about our prayer. If we want to know his leading and his guidance in uncertain, tumultuous times, we must pray. If we want to know the joy of the Lord in our lives, if we want to know the uh, reassurance of our identity and our inheritance in Christ, and we want to be a community, a family that is characterized, known because of our love for one another, because of the unity that we enjoy, if we want to know more of the power of God in our lives, the power of the Spirit, so we can lead naturally supernatural lives, we must pray and not give up. There's no other way. There's no shortcuts to this. We have our part that God gives us. There's much that we cannot do, only he can do. But what we are called to do is pray and fast and seek him and do his will. The kings of Judah always had the nuclear option at their disposal. And they didn't use it. Instead, they looked for their own foolish solutions to the problems that they faced, the situations they faced, the threats they faced. Let's not be like that. Let's not be like them. Let's be like Hezekiah, who turned to the temple in prayer. And he turned to a God 
who hears and responds, the only one who has the answers, the only one who has the power to change things. He turned to him. Let's do that. Let's come together during this season of 40 days. Let's come together in prayer, come together in fasting, and come together in worship, trusting that God can do immeasurably more than we can possibly dare to dream of or imagine, trusting that God will do mighty things through the prayers of the saints, and we, in our day, we will see his kingdom come. Amen? Amen.